talk about human-centered. When asked who to design for, Charles said, you design for someone you love, and it can be you. <laughs> and that's how human-centered it is. Mid-century modern design aesthetics are enduring and as relevant today as ever. Perhaps no designers influence those philosophies more than Charles and Ray Eames, whose body of work transcends media and is still being produced today. It's hard not to think of the Eameses as monolithic design heroes, but today we're taking a different look at them as human beings. We're talking with Lisa Dimitrios, chief curator of the Eames Institute and the granddaughter of Charles and Ray Eames. In this interview, we get to know some of the personal stories behind the legendary designers, from how they met, to Lisa's experience having two of the most creative grandparents a child could wish for. This is the first episode of our series on design history, to be followed by interviews with legendary designers like Paula Schur and Jonathan Heffler, design curators like Paula Antonelli, and design historians like Barry Cates. After the interview, stay tuned for a special conversation with Heath Ceramics, founded by Edith Heath in the 1940s and played a major role in defining the mid-century modern aesthetic. Learn about the origins of Heath Ceramics and bring the history home with a special discount that we'll share at the end of the conversation. We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. And now, back to the show. Lisa Dimitrios, thank you so much for being on the Design Better podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. So, Lisa, you're doing really interesting work at the Eames Institute in California, and we want to talk a little bit about that. But it's important for listeners to know who your grandparents were. Who are your grandparents? My grandparents are Ray and Charles Eames, and they had their office in Los Angeles. Their office was in Venice, the Venice part, and then their home was in Pacific Palisades. I like to say that as amazing as my grandparents were as designers, they were even more amazing as grandparents because they would share whatever they were working on. I'm the youngest of five grandchildren, so we get to fly down and visit and see whatever. It could be a film, it could be a toy, it could be an exhibit that they were working on. Yeah. And you're actually in a lot of their films too, which is fun to see. I'm in a couple of them. Each of us grandchildren are, are in a few. They made over 80 short films. In fact, a hundred if you count the unedited, unfinished ones too. It's really a way that they like to document and to express and communicate their ideas was through film. So your grandparents, Ray and Charles, had a huge influence over industrial design, you know, filmmaking, even, you know, they touched on politics, identity design, so many different aspects of design and design history. But what's very interesting to me is the way Ray and Charles put it. And yes, you're right. I mean, they made short films, graphics, photography, chairs, all kinds of furniture exhibits. But in every project they did, it was what is the need that they saw should be addressed or somebody came to them with a need that they wanted addressed. They called themselves tradesmen, that they were just simply figuring out and find solutions to problems. And they also considered design a method of action. They really considered it an opportunity to understand the constraints and how to come up with the best solution. And that's what we can show through the collection at the Eames Institute. Because the Eames Institute of Infinite Curiosity is really a chance to unpack how Ray and Charles you know, followed their boundless curiosity in solving problems. And it could be anything from, you know, a molded plywood chair. But what I love to share is from their very first project, which was making those molded plywood chairs. And this is the 1940s in Los Angeles, that they're at a party and a doctor friend of theirs is saying that soldiers being carried off the field, the injury is made worse by the metal splint than the injury itself by the time they get to the ambulance because of the vibration. And so what I love is Ray and Charles took the way that they were making chairs and applied it to making wood lake splints, which actually by 1943, they made over 100,000. And a very special part of it too is that it was a way to help the war effort without hurting anybody. So to me with my grandparents' work is I'm still learning from it. It's layers of learning. You appreciate an object for one reason, but then there's a deeper message in it. Yeah. 
And I love the splint example. I actually saw it for the first time in the World War II Museum in New Orleans. It was part of the exhibit there. But maybe we could just rewind a little bit. Could you tell us about how Ray and Charles met? Yes, because that's actually was the first online exhibit we did with the material that we have in the collection, because our collection isn't just what Ray and Charles made, but also things they received, gifts, passports, itineraries, and such like that. So Ray grew up in Sacramento, California. Her father ran one of those large theaters of performing arts where there was singing, dancing, all kinds of things. And she made the most exquisite paper dolls that, as I like to tell people, Barbie would kill for these outfits that she designed herself. And later in life, she designed her own clothes. And Charles studied architecture in St. Louis. Now, Ray, with her painting, went and studied at Hans Hoffman's studio in New York. And then that's where she met Lee Krasner, who was dating a guy named Jackson Pollock. And then she went from there to Cranbrook. Meanwhile, my grandfather, I'm actually from the first marriage, Charles and Catherine. And my mom is the only child from that marriage. And Ray and Charles did not have children. Extraordinary grandmother, though. And so at that point, they had lived in St. Louis. And then because of the churches that Charles had designed in Arkansas, Arrow's father saw that in the magazines and asked, invited him to Cranbrook. And so that's where he met Arrow. And that's when they did the competition along with four other teams at Cranbrook for MoMA in 1939. And then Charles and Arrow win the competition. So they meet when Ray is visiting Cranbrook. And at that point, my grandfather was divorcing my grandmother. So she stayed behind in St. Louis with my mother, but my mom would go up and visit. And then when Ray and Charles got married, they married in Chicago. And the reason they picked Los Angeles was because they wouldn't know anybody and they could focus on the mass production of the design that had been made, that had won the competition. Which was a really great idea, I have to say, that Elliot Noyes, when he was curating the competition, it was an opportunity not to just make a design, but to work with a fabricator who could produce the design. And that was just a great experience why so many people entered the competition. So my favorite design professor as an undergrad, Matt Kahn, he also came out of Cranbrook. He actually didn't finish there. He's the only tenured professor, I think, at Stanford that not only did not have a PhD, but no undergraduate degree. But he was very much a part of this whole mid-century modern movement and very much, you know, taught students like me to really admire it. But I'm sure a big portion of our audience is familiar, but maybe for those who aren't, could you talk a little bit about that movement and how influential your grandparents were? So the mid-century movement, I mean, what's so interesting about it is it was really thinking of design as a way to solve problems and to apply those ideas. So for example, that mass production could be a good thing, that it could actually raise the quality for everybody. But what that means when you mass produce something that you have to have the best possible prototype. And what I mean by that, Ray and Charles called it the guest host relationship. Your job is to anticipate the need of your client before they've thought of it. And so working with Herman Miller, that allowed them to scale up. So my grandparents never wanted to make a design once. They wanted to figure out a system to make 100,000. And again, I think that's part of the mid-century movement was thinking at different scales. And also that the world was growing, returning GIs needed housing. That's part of the arts and architecture program in Los Angeles. And seeing like those methods of production that were used during the war, how they could be used for consumers today wanting to build homes and the materials. What I love is, you know, sometimes people say, were Ray and Charles optimists, you know, in their approaching of problems? And what I would say is all designers are optimists. If they are approaching the problems that, whether you're facing it during the Depression, World War II, mid-century, designers are just inherently um, optimists in, in trying to understand what the need is and what needs to be addressed. And that's what I think is about the mid-century movement. And many partaking in that. And Ray and Charles always considered those years at Cranbrook that Charles was there, because Ray was there for a short time, Charles there for a few years, were some of the most special times. You know, the Saarinen's were there, Noel was there. They have a huge impact on the future of design by the companies that they work with. That's incredible. All of those ideas kind of concentrated in one place. So Ray and Charles meet at Cranbrook, and they connect on a personal and a creative level. Ray's a painter. Charles is an architect, but there's something common about them. They both have a sense of play and discovery about them. 
Could you talk about their collaborative relationship? How did they work together and when did that working relationship begin? I really consider that the Eames office began when they got married. And that's what my siblings also say, because the collaboration began almost immediately. What I saw was, because I was 12 when Charles passed away and 22 when Ray passed away, I saw them looking at the projects from almost two different vantage points, Charles from his architecture background and Ray from painting. But that very first project of trying to make that molded plywood chair, and just think about this that they're trying to make a chair so comfortable it doesn't need upholstery, that the forms of the wood are so comfortable. Now, the first time when they're making that chair, they also realized there's so many wonderful nuggets to this one experience of making this molded plywood chair. First of all, they would start at their own home and try out ideas. Then they called that the skunk works. Then they would go into the office and then try a few more prototypes there. And when they could make like 5,000 of them, then they would ship it off to Herman Miller, who could then scale it up to 100,000. But when they first made these chairs and they were looking at, you know, how something was produced, they realized that influences the design. So what they needed to do was make not just the prototypes, but the machines that made the prototypes. And that's why with the mold of plywood, they thought it was magic. So they called it the Alakazam machine because you put in a flat piece of wood and it comes out bent for the finished piece. That's another thing that they learned about is the importance of the honest use of materials. What could the wood do and what couldn't it do? And respect that and let the forms come from the evolving learning that they are experiencing while they're doing it. They were very hands-on. They really believe that's how you can understand if the system is working. And so they would actually call things like more moments of found learning and less teaching and just by doing it. So for me, you'd be at the office. It was incredible at the office. I thought everyone's office was like this. You're shown movies like Powers of 10. You have multi-screen presentations. You're invited to ask questions. But the thing was, is they could be working on an exhibit, on a graphic, a film, a national aquarium proposal, all at the same time. So imagine an office that has all these things going around. So it's like watching master chessmen, you know, at the park that are doing 20 games at once. They would be going and checking in with individuals on the different projects. And what I always loved is that it's not that I saw them fighting or disagreeing on something. It's more talking to the individual working on that project with them, asking like, what did you find interesting on this? Like, what do you like about this? And really listening because that's where the connections are made. Now, what I also found was that I felt that each one had 51% of the vote. So it wasn't like, you know, one over the other. It was very communal. It was a lot of communication and it was just a joy to watch. It was really fun. Was there a division of labor in the way they worked though? Like, was it like Ray does this, Charles does that, or did they pass things back and forth? More the passing back and forth. What was really great at the office is that everything can be done in-house. And what I mean by that is you could take the picture on the stage set of the piece of furniture. You could create the graphic that is going to be part of the merchandising of the piece. And so you saw multiple things happening at the same time. What I appreciated is when Ray and Charles knew I wanted to be a sculptor, their advice to me was, you need to be able to use every tool as well, if not better than the person you hire, or you won't know if they're doing a good job. And they walk the walk in their own office. So if somebody was missing that day, they could fill that in. And that could be anything from working with a scale model, filming something. It was interchangeable, that skill set. And so, you know, over the 40 years of the office, there's probably, I think we counted almost over 400 people working there, mostly people two or three years after college and then going off and having their own amazing careers. And so what was interesting is like it was set up so they were able to produce so much because they were working so well with people who also may have been hired to work on a film, but then are also working on an exhibit. And so everyone was very nimble and versatile at the office in whatever was getting worked on. Lisa, so this was a factor of the times that they were working, but there was definitely a lack of recognition sometimes for the work that Ray did. And we had on Barry Cates, who you may know recently, and he told the story about Charles getting a fancy award and then Ray got a rose during the ceremony, which just seems to like speak to the disconnect between the real, like you said, 51% collaboration that each, each of them was doing. So 
Can you talk a little bit about that and you know what we can do to correct the historical record there? So the thing is, is what's interesting is, you know, Ray was asked that. She has, it's actually been in interviews. And what we heard from her growing up was, if you said Ray did this, then that almost implies that that's the only thing she does. And yet she was involved in everything. And it's not that one person had a better sense of color than the other. It's not that one person could do something better than another. In fact, first of all, Charles said she's more famous than I am when they met. And also that everything he can do, she can do better. But what we did do as a family after she passed away, because she wouldn't be able to answer that question herself and explain her perspective on it, we did go to the museums that had Eames pieces in it and had her name added to the label because we knew that might not pass on to the next generation, how important her contribution was and just as important as Charles's was. And so that's just sort of an ongoing thing. And so for me, I saw them working hand in hand and you know, taking their pleasure seriously, as they put it, they love working hard. And so that's sort of why we did raise hand exhibit an online show where you actually, we could select some pieces where it's scale models that she was working on and just tell more of her story. The story that I love to tell is she designed her own clothes. So she would make a pattern and make seven versions of it. Usually like one in silk, one in linen for the travels that she's doing but it's the skirts that were the best because she would have like 10 to 12 pockets in her skirt. So she could have her keys to the car, you know, a scissors, um, needle and thread, whatever she needed. Her toolkit was in her skirt. Some said that you could probably, she probably had hidden a Polaroid camera in there and you wouldn't even know it the way she designed it. But again, she was just ready for anything is what I always loved. And so I took that to being always being prepared to be involved and be engaged. And so that's what I saw. It sounds like she kind of spoke to that issue after Charles died, but did she ever speak to it in the moment? So for example, if you uh, go on YouTube on Herman Miller's channel, there's interviews where I think it's probably from the early 50s and the TV interviewer is speaking to Charles the whole time and Ray's like even brought in later as an afterthought, you're supporting your husband, et cetera. I don't know how she shouldered that. That would be very difficult to take. Well, I think in those moments, I can't imagine what that is. But the thing was, is I think Charles always tried to make her front and center with him. And I think the message got through. It just maybe didn't start that way. And there's nothing to do but to learn from that. And so, yes, there's some moments that surprise me when I see. Also, Ray and Charles were also never about looking back at something. They were always looking ahead to the next thing. And so that's how she addressed it. But she was always gracious. They both were always gracious. And I know I was very surprised when I saw growing up with grandparents and how I saw they were treated at the office and treated each other to see that it's a whole other world out there. But the only way to change it is by showing by example, and they did that. So you, you've mentioned several times that they were wonderful grandparents. Do you have any family stories you could share, anything that, that would be interesting for our audience to learn about? I think one of my favorite stories is when I'm often asked, when's one of your earliest memory of spending time with Ray and Charles? And it's going out to dinner with them. I was about eight years old and been flown down back in the days with Braniff Airlines, which was just... <laughs> color sensory overload, fantastic. And then Ray would pick one up up at the airport and take one over to the office where usually they were still working until, you know, through the evening sometimes. Venice, California is right near the beach, as many know. And we had walked over to a cafe and we're coming back from dinner. And Charles asked me what I thought of dinner. Now I was eight years old and it was borscht. I think you can do the math. I said to him, I didn't like it very much. And do you know what he said to me without missing a beat was how would you have done things differently? So it means you're welcome to complain, but you have to come up with another solution. And it's just a great life lesson. And so I, he said, do you know what's in borscht? And I said, I have no idea what's in borscht. And he's like, beets, potatoes, onions. You could have made mashed potatoes if that's what you had, or you could have had the beets on the side. And so we had a whole story about what you could make with the ingredients for borscht. Then he said, why do you think the chef made it that day? Is it a favorite dish? Is it someone's birthday? Is it 
the farmer's market. That's all there is. So then we had a whole other story. And so when we got back to the office, you know, I felt empowered. I felt heard, but it made me look at things differently. And that's part of what we want to do at the Institute. So there was an Eames exhibit that started at the Barbican in London in 2015. And when you do an exhibit, you don't know how long the material 450 objects are going to be out in the world, but it ended up going to eight other cities and it finished in Oakland, California at the museum here. And so because they were so nearby, we invited all the docents to up to the Institute to come see the more archival material, share some of these stories like that one. What was great is the next time I went to see the exhibit, one of the docents came over and she said, Lisa, your story worked. And I said, great, which story? And she said, the borscht one. I said, great, how? She said, the next time my grandchildren complained about the salads, I said, how would you do it differently? And the thing was, she said, they didn't like mushrooms. She's like, I don't care if they don't like mushrooms. They can have mushrooms another time. But now we're making salads. We're talking about things, what we could do differently each time. We could iterate on them. And she said, for some reason, just that little bit of way different to look at something has caused a whole shift in approach for this. And so that's really the beauty of my grandparents' work. That's the joy that I get at the Institute is watching what people do when they can learn from my grandparents just like I did. I love that. Curious to try with my son because I think his response will be more ice cream next time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But see, this is the thing, and I've said this once or twice before, which is I had the view from the shoulders of giants. And I'm actually not worried about my kids. I'm worried about everyone else's kids of having that view and understanding nothing's done in a void today. Eventually everything connects, just as my grandparents always said. And we're half going to have to think in terms of systems of facing the challenges today. And so all these iterations and approaches is what we're doing at the Institute by creating pop-up shows. We want to create a future destination of a museum. We're taking the ideas inside at the ranch about conservation and preservation and applying them outside to being better stewards of the land. And it's learning by doing. And that's the thing about my grandparents' work. All of it is participatory. You sit in a chair. You watch a film. You're always learning by being around it. And we're just trying to create more opportunities because it still resonates with many today. We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DesignBetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Design Better. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit CrashPlan.com slash Design Better for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. From my daughter's first birthday to my son's first soccer game, if you're like me, you have thousands of precious family photos that only exist in digital form. That's why I've been using CrashPlan for a decade and a half now to back up all my important files. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud server every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Businesses of all sizes benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities, buy as many user licenses as you need, and easily manage them all under one account. Go to CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. That's CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter, all one word, for 50% off your first year. Back up better with CrashPlan. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. 
Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. And now, back to the show. You know, looking at the house that they lived in, they designed for, you know, it was one of the case study houses. That's the uh, Pacific Palisades home. Seeing photos of them in the house, one thing that I'm struck by is, I mean, every object in there is beautiful. The house, everything is so intentional. And yet nothing feels so precious that it can't be lived in and moved and manipulated and it just has a, a feeling of it's a safe space for creative exploration. What was that like as a kid being in a space like that, watching them live in a space like that? Yeah. It, I mean, the Eames house is just a marvel unto itself. I do agree. And there's so many things one could talk about just with that. It was really exciting. I mean, some people ask me, like, were you afraid to touch anything? Like, you know, and you know, you're just taught as a child how to handle things and you just handle them carefully. I mean, you don't bounce a ball in there, but you can fly a kite outside. But I think one of the things I have loved is when they were given one of the first portable Polavision cameras by Edward Land. There were like five in the world at that point, and one of them was sent to Ray and Charles. So one of the films you would see, it's not out, but it's in the archives. It's Lisa Draws a Letter. So they invited me to come down to Los Angeles and to be in the house and film me draw a letter, which I think is funny, not write a letter, but to draw a letter. But they did do rebuses, which were brilliant, where you draw in pictures. And so they film me sitting on the floor, and I have scissors, glue, pens, paint, I could use anything I wanted. Can you imagine me today as a curator letting anybody do that in the living room of the Eames house? Not going to happen. But what was fun was like the next time I came down in the cabinet of the alcove, they had a, doesn't everybody have a 16 millimeter projector? And then they could pull a screen down in the living room and they could project the film of me playing and making this letter in the living room. And I realized it was my first home theater. And so for me, what I have found is I look at these objects and these experiences like spending time at the Eames house through the lens as a grandchild and then also as a curator. And now it's about taking care of those objects. Those objects are with the house. That's part of the foundation, which I'm a board member with my siblings. And then the Eames office, I'm a shareholder, which still produces the projects like chairs and furniture today with our partners at Herman Miller and Vitra. And so it's just interesting seeing about the object because now as a maker, I want to know where something came from, who made it, how did Ray and Charles use it? Is it used where it came from, the pieces that they collected? And then the pieces that they make, I want to see what the prototypes are. And this is in the collection at the Institute. It's asking different questions and it creates a sort of different database because what you find quickly, you mentioned Ray and Charles at the Eames House, we have an Ives train that's already interesting because it was given to Charles on his birthday by Billy Wilder. It's used in the short film Takata Fortray Trains. It's photographed for the House of Cards. It's at their very first Christmas at the Eames House in 1949. And it's used as a Herman Miller showroom prop. So one object has many stories, but it allows one to connect all these areas of interest of Ray and Charles because they always surrounded themselves with things that they loved. And so I think people still feel that when they see the objects in the collection, but also when they visit the Eames house. And there's a lot of objects. I mean, I think that's the surprise for people. You look at that kitchen and there's not one dish, there's a stack of dishes. And even if something broke, like if there was a, a porcelain beautiful dish, Ray didn't throw that away. 
She glued it back together and put a special sticker on the bottom of it, which just meant that you carefully hand washed it. And I just love that. So it was almost beautiful even in its use. You mentioned the film Powers of Ten. And if folks in the audience haven't watched it, I recommend taking a look after the show. We'll put a, a link to it. It's just wonderful short movie, which just sort of zooms in from a human level down to a subatomic level, then back out into the universe. And what's really interesting as you're, you're talking about their work is the ability they had to work at all these different scales from model making to architecture and then in between. What do you think en- enabled that for both of them? I think for them, there's a wonderful diagram, and I wish I could call it up for you, which is the design process of overlapping interest is how they described how they worked. And therefore, there was a circle that showed what they wanted to accomplish. A second circle was for a client, but there was always a third circle, which is society as a whole. And you had to focus on the part that overlapped with all three. So for example, they're making a chair for Herman Miller. That's great but they actually realize they have to make a sustainable chair. And what that means is you're thinking about the sourcing of the material to even it being thrown away in a landfill and it doesn't become toxic for the environment. So when you talk about these scales, it's not just about them on that picnic, or they're not on the picnic blanket, but metaphorically on the picnic blanket. Then they're thinking about what is the ripple effect of the choices that they're making when they're producing this furniture or when they're designing an exhibit, which is more about bridging a communication gap. And what I loved is actually, there were so many picnics spent with Ray and Charles that to have a picnic as the starting point for the Powers of 10 is really interesting. I'm not sure if you know with the movie Powers of 10, there's actually a black and white version that's earlier by almost 10 years, which actually takes place coming out of Florida. You pass like a 747 or something coming by. It also has a clock. But when scientists didn't quite know what would happen with the clock at, when it becomes the speed of light, they took it out in the later version. You only showed what you understood and could prove. It's why it stops at quarks because quarks were not proven. And so you only shared that part. It switches to Chicago, and that's because they wanted to be able to come out at that particular point so it came out and you could see the Milky Way, the spiral of the Milky Way. But there's even a short film before that, which was called Truck. It's a test that was only internally done at the office to look to see if they could actually make the shot, film it the way that they wanted to film it. And it actually worked with just a couple of scales. But I think that's what's so great is I think for Ray and Charles, they were curious if they could show everything connected by distance. That's what Powers of 10 is. That film only became more important to me with having two children and seeing kids on computer screens, not having that inherent nature of scale. Scale isn't something being big or small. It's being next to something. How big or small is something next to that? Do you see? I think we've lost that perspective. And so the film has almost become even more relevant today for our future problem solvers. I love Powers of 10, and listeners should also see if they can track down on eBay the flipbook version, because the flipbook is incredible. And anytime we have kids that visit our house and they're sort of wandering around, I always pull that off the shelf and show it to them, and it, they marvel at it. Something everyone at every age can sort of grok. It's pretty great. You touched on something before, and I wanted to come back to it because I think it's important with the work of Ray and Charles, is... In the collection, we also have things that are broken that were at the office. And it might be a torn edge of fabric on a chair. It might be a base. And do you know why Ray and Charles kept it? Because they knew where to make it better the next time. It was great information of how to improve and iterate on the next version. And that was also the beauty of working with Herman Miller and Vitra, was that they were willing to make those changes as something went into production. So to give you an example, X-Base sounds great but it's going to crack. So it goes to an H base or Ray discontinuing Brazilian rosewood because when she hears of the harvesting of it impacting negatively on the Brazilian forest. And so we have, then it switches to some other woods like cherry. And so that's part of what we're showing is Ray and Charles's iteration of how they solve problems as more information came in. And because when you start talking about orders of magnitude, like what's shown in powers of 10, when you're coming out that big, It's almost like, how do you make sure you're understanding the whole problem 
or are you just looking at one symptom? Have you stepped out further? And back to Ilio Saarinen, Cranbrook, he was the one that suggested that to Charles when he was there, like, look at the next larger thing and the next smaller thing when you're working on a project. And then Ray and Charles expanded on that with the movie. You've touched on the philosophy of design that Ray and Charles brought to their work, but I wonder if you could just spell that out for listeners a little bit more clearly. Were there principles specifically that guided their creative process? It really is, was as simple as they considered it a, a design is a method of action and they were there to address a need or someone would come to them with a need. And the thing was, is they were very elliptical in their approach to problems. And so to give you two examples, when they were designing the lounge chair in Ottoman, they called that designing seating. They said, if you said it was designing a chair, you were eliminating the ottoman before you've even thought of it. And so to me, it's that approach to the problem, the questions they asked. I think whether it was designing the home for Max Dupree, which was after the Eames house, I think some people might have expected that they walked in with with floor plans and a model. No, they came in with a list of questions. What were the hobbies of the Dupree's? Were they indoor, outdoors? How many children were they planning to have? And so it's the list of questions that I think is very much the questions they were asking that created the solutions and really teased out what the best solution would be. Another one that I would give with the list of questions is when they designed the airport tandem seating, they said, you talk to the person who's going to buy your chair, but also the person who's going to take care of your chair. And they wanted to know what was wrong with the existing airport seating. Why do they need to design airport seating? And so they talked to the maintenance teams across the country. And what they found was it was the replacement parts. The back and seat were two different shapes, heavily upholstered, took two people to take it out, took up a lot of storage. And if you look at the airport tandem seating, the back and the seat are the same form. It rolls up into a little tube. It takes one person and one screwdriver to pop it out and put the new one in. And so we can show that iteration of how they figured out and how to solve the problems. I think some people uh, may not realize Ray and Charles always started with their own living room and started with what were the questions that they could ask. They didn't try to answer everything at once. They really tried to see what was that need because they wanted to mend systems rather than replace them if possible. Because when you mend a system, there's already so much information there that when you innovate, it's very challenging to actually have that come out well and have it last. They were always asking the question, what is this chair doing in 5, 10, 25 years? They didn't really care about what it looked like. They just wanted to know if it was still doing its job, whether a dining chair for an auditorium, for a doctor's office, what the wear and tear was. So... From what you say about their process, in a lot of ways, it parallels what people call human-centered design or design thinking that was sort of becoming popular in the early 60s and then was popularized you know, places like IDEO, the D-School, et cetera. Where do you think one draws from the other, or could you tell us more about the relationship there, if there is one? I can get even more specific. Bill Stumpf at Herman Miller tells a great story, which they recorded, which is, talk about human-centered When asked who to design for, Charles said, you design for someone you love, and it can be you. (laughs) And that's how human-centered it is, because you're going to know all the things you like and don't like. There's so much information there. And so also, I mean, I love that Herman Miller, and it may have been Bill Stump again, but asked the question of, you know, rather than thinking of a chair being a chair that you sit in and it's bad for your health, maybe design a chair that makes it good for your health. So it's really turning some of these questions upside down is what I think is really important. But it makes sense. I mean, Ray and Charles, when they were first designing the multi plywood chair, they designed it with three legs. That's a very stable chair, right? But there's one problem. Nobody knows how to get out of a three-legged chair without falling. And Ray and Charles said to themselves, we're not going to teach anyone how to sit in a chair. We're going to work with how people sit in a chair. What we have in the collection with some of my favorite pieces are examples of like the jigs that they made of the base of the chair that could be raised or tilted at different angles. And if we were visiting the office, they'd have us all sit in it, see what worked, because they called it making the best product for the most people for the least amount of money. And that's the best for the most for the least is the official quote. But it's just really important to think that way and to iterate and to watch and to listen. And one of my favorite stories, if you were asking like, Lisa, what's some of your favorite objects in the collection as prototypes? Because 
Ray and Charles, when they were working on something, they didn't just sit around and do drawings. There's actually very few drawings of chairs at the Library of Congress because what the drawings are of is usually when it's gone into production. What we have in the collection are the prototypes because each material was new and different. There was wire rod, plastic, fiberglass, aluminum, molded plywood. And so what happened is they worked directly in the material as soon as possible like immediately, because they wanted to see what it could do or not do. And that's where Ray and Charles were really working closely together. And when you work in aluminum, you actually have to cast something. So you have to make something in wood or plaster and cast it. Now, when they were making the aluminum group chair, Eames Aluminum Group chair, that was an idea of a piece of furniture that could be indoors and outdoors. And there was a surround fabric that was used on cars, so that material could be in and out, and so could aluminum. Now, the forms that they made to cast you actually can see on the forms where they've cut it and have adjusted it and made nuances as they refined the design. And in the end, they made eight of these. And only one was chosen. The first one that had been made had been chosen. And everyone's just like, really? You have seven others. And you know what Ray and Charles said? You had to make the other seven to know the first one was right. <laughs> and isn't that true? And so that's what I love is like the iteration. And that's why when we're done counting, we thought it was going to be 20,000 objects. It's probably been closer to 50,000 when we're done. Tell us about your work at the Eames Institute, what you're doing, what the Institute is doing, and how are you carrying their legacy forward? To back up, Charles passed away in 78 and Ray in 1988. I had worked at both an auction house and at MoMA in New York. And I saw how for me, it was really important for things not to go disappear into private collections from those experiences, but to have it be out in the public. So I worked in the Mies van der Rohe archive in MoMA, six weeks that turned into three years of publishing the drawings. That's how you shared a collection, was taking photographs and printing and making books. Then over the years, um, mom had inherited the collection that she did that came from the office. Library of Congress did, we shipped 750,000 images to them at Ray and Charles's request before they passed. And then also a lot of their 2D material. But as my mom said, when she walked back into the office, it looked like nothing had been taken. So she bundled everything up in 1988 and brought it to San Francisco in 89. And then there was an earthquake in San Francisco. So that's why she created the space up in Petaluma, about 20,000 square feet between house and barn, where we continued the archiving of what she had inherited. And the built structures were designed by William Turnbull, who did a lot of sea ranch buildings. And his sister was a neighbor of ours in San Francisco. So we'd gone up to many sea ranch buildings. And so mom, loved the flexibility of the spaces. And so in archiving the work, mom had started when she inherited it. I, meanwhile, had finished that project. And so I'd offered to mom, if she would like help, I'd be happy to help. So for 25 years, I've been doing this even before it was acquired by the Eames Institute. And it's really continuing what we started, which is we're inventorying what came up from the office. And what's interesting is it can be toys, it can be furniture prototypes. It can be graphics. It's a whole myriad of things. And then we're seeing what needs attention, but we're also documenting it. So what we're doing is photographing and using the museum system, which the Getty uses. I'm not doing this by myself anymore. I have a wonderful team of six who are helping organize this. I call it the catch and release program. My job is to have caught this, but how do we release this in different ways? And so that goes into creating online exhibits, creating an inventory so that when curators visit, they can look up things. It's how we tag information. And then also how we can make loans to other museums. Usually there's a large Eames exhibit every 10 years. Um, that's what we've seen as our family for the last 30, 40 years. And so sometimes we participate by loaning objects. Usually what you want to do is also have an opportunity to maybe restore some special pieces that haven't been seen as much. For the last one, we did the Ravel Toy House, and we also restored some films. Um, and so I'm always curious to see what the next thing is that we're taking care of. It's fascinating. What a great, great job. It is. I didn't know there was this job. I feel very fortunate to be able to steward the legacy in these ways. And so what we're enjoying is with the website, we were going to launch in person. But with COVID, that just wasn't possible. So we focused on sharing through the website. And what I'm enjoying is what people want to learn more about, whether it's a particular project. I would like to also focus on some of the lesser known projects. Maybe people don't know that Ray and Charles did a national aquarium proposal for Washington, D.C. And what's important about that is their first question was, 
how do you help someone care for something that they can't even see, which is underwater? And so they called it making the invisible visible because they were realizing in the 1960s, there's a great long quote by Charles called the Lake Michigan dream, that everybody wanting the same things is not sustainable for Earth. And therefore, what are new covetables that everybody could have, which are really things where the coin is not money, it's time, learning things. But again, for me, what's special about the National Aquarium Project is that for them, they actually had 20 saltwater tanks at the office. They collected sea creatures, they filmed them, they made a short film, and they also made a little booklet. And even though they knew it was unlikely that the aquarium would be built, they put all this learning together for the future aquariums of the world. And that became the Baltimore Aquarium, that became the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And so that's sort of what I feel like at the Institute, it's we're seeding things, we're creating opportunities and cultivating curiosity because we need everyone's curiosity to solve the challenges that we face today. Lisa, this was so fun having you on the show. Before we let you go, what's the best place for folks to go check out what's going on with the Eames Institute? What would be great is to please visit eamesinstitute.org and to come visit and sign up for our newsletter because as we do pop-ups or we participate in different events and, and symposiums, then you'll know about it there first. And I hope in the future, everyone can visit us in the Bay Area when we have both the facilities, but also that we have a future museum, which is the goal in a couple of years, to be able to have a place that houses the collection that we can share so many different projects that Ray and Charles worked on. But thank you very much for including me in your series. I'm very excited to be a part of it. Thanks for being on the show, Lisa. Thank you. Keeping on the theme of mid-century modern design, we're going to take a look at Heath Ceramics, which was founded by Edith Heath in the 1940s and is a staple of that mid-century modern look. I had the unique opportunity to visit the San Francisco studio of Heath Ceramics recently, got a look into their process, got to take some fun photographs, which you can catch on our website. And this episode is sponsored in part by Heath Ceramics. We want to share a little bit about the history of their brand and what makes them so special. And today we talk with Julie Muniz, who's a Heath archivist, as well as Rosalie Wild, Heath's design director. Eli, you eat off of Heath ceramics every day, right? It is a constant part of my life. My folks have had dishes for a long time, and I just love them as a brand. Me too. We've got Heath tile, this dimensional tile on our fireplace in our bedroom, and I love it. I, it's the first thing I see every morning when I wake up. We're big fans of Heath ceramics. Their design and their history is very relevant still today, and we're excited for you to hear a little bit more about Heath Ceramics. My name is Julie Muniz, and I am the archivist here at Heath Ceramics. Edith was born in Ida Grove, Iowa, just this little tiny town, but she wasn't destined to stay there. She really wanted to be an artist. She spent some time in Chicago and was studying to be an art teacher there. And that's where she met her husband, Brian. And they got married. Eventually, Brian needed to move down to the Bay Area because Brian was the regional director of the Red Cross. So they came down for his job. And that's when Edith started taking ceramic classes and her career took off from there before she was teaching art and suddenly she was making it. She has these memories of her family having this fancy Havilland china set that would only come out once a year. And she thought that was kind of silly and wasteful. When she started doing Keith's ceramics, she envisioned having some dinnerware that was as good for your very fine china as well as your everyday china. She didn't see the need to have two different sets. She took away all of the gilding, all of the fancy painting and everything on it and created this really beautiful stoneware that was durable, was very utilitarian, but also very beautiful. And she really followed a lot of the doctrines of modernism because of that. I think she was really embraced by a lot of the modern architects and the designers of that day. My name is Rosalie Wild, and my role at Heath is design director. 
My background is in industrial design and I've been at Heath for over 10 years. Most of my experience at the company has been really close to the product. So I've worked on dinnerware, glazes, glaze techniques, tile, collections, collaborations. And then my role as design director is really taking the philosophy we bring to the product and expanding it to the rest of the brand. One thing that I've really heard a lot from people who worked with Edith Heath is that when they were working on projects, people would have ideas, what would happen if we combined this? Or what would happen if we tried this? And her answer would be like, just try it. Just go do the experiment, you know? And we are lucky to be able to keep doing that where we just go straight to working with the material itself and then we let that lead our way and we're not precious about success and failure. I think that we are lucky to have so much intact of what she did at Heath and there's so many products that we still make today that come from her design. And the way we think about extending that into other products is staying true to the materials properties because I think so much of our design at Heath comes from just working with the materials directly and working close to production. People are really interested in researching the products that they buy and that's fortunately so in line with how Edith Heath thought about the dinnerware and how we still think about it which is that it's for using every day, it works in formal situations, informal situations, and that the material is designed to last. Heath Ceramics is timeless and beautiful. These are the types of objects you pass on from generation to generation. The type of gift you bring to a wedding, or the thing that you'd want to put on a beautiful Thanksgiving table. You can save 15% off your first order by visiting dbtr.co slash heathceramics. That's dbtr.co slash heathceramics. Place your order before October 31st at midnight. Eli and I love producing this podcast, but sometimes we find ourselves wondering, what sort of feedback does our audience have how could we improve the show? Maybe you could help us by taking just a couple minutes to complete a survey, answering a few questions about your thoughts about the show, sharing your feedback, and telling us a little bit about you. To take the survey, just go to dbtr.co slash survey. That's dbtr.co slash survey. Our thanks in advance for completing the survey. It'll really help us improve the show. This episode was produced by Eli Woolery and me, Aaron Walter, with engineering and production support from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. If you found this episode useful, we hope that you'll leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to finer shows. Or simply drop a link to the show in your team's Slack channel, designbetterpodcast.com. It'll really help others discover the show. Until next time.